The Silk Road was a collection of trade routes that wove through Asia, Europe, and Africa, primarily originating from China from around 200 BCE until sometime in the 1720s CE. The moniker Silk Road is a bit deceptive, though, since the maritime routes, the shipping lanes traversed by boats across oceans and bays rather than using camels and caravans and such overland, those were apparently far more vital for most of its existence. It wasn't so much a road as it was a collection of relatively well-traveled paths that, at harbor towns, connected to a far more expansive and lucrative web of shipping lanes. What's more, silk was only one small part of what was traded. Spices were apparently a lot more important as trade goods along most of these routes, while silk remained a far less common and scarce resource. Further, the dates during which the Silk Road is commonly said to have existed is not terribly well supported by historical evidence, at least not as a continuous, cohesive piece of infrastructure. The earliest reliable trade routes in this area were set up during the Han Dynasty between the Chinese and the various Central Asian powers of the era, and those eventually fed into adjacent isolated trading paths carved out between the Chinese and other cultures, as far afield as Egypt and parts of modern-day Germany. So there were multiple routes that connected to each other within China, but to refer to them as a single, complete route would be a bit of a leap. These individual trade routes ebbed and flowed over the generations, and many of the overland routes in particular were controlled by different local powers at different times, like, for instance, the Persians, the Greeks, the Roman Empire, and the Byzantines, until, that is, these powers were knocked over and conquered by younger civilizations, like the Islamic Abbasid dynasty, and eventually, pretty much everyone thereabouts was conquered by the Mongols, who set up their own surprisingly open-minded and trade-friendly networks throughout their conquered lands. So while there was some relative consistency throughout these routes, in terms of where they were located, the names on the signs did change, and the names of the towns changed. The people receiving the taxes on the trade goods changed, and from time to time, their routes would be less protected than usual, leaving them open to raiders, or the routes would close up completely due to local conflicts or a new conqueror changing the rules and wanting to keep foreign goods and cultural influences out of their markets. By some estimates, though this is not a universal supposition, the final owners of the traditional Silk Road were the Safavids, an Islamic dynasty that ruled a gunpowder empire which shaped modern Iran and made a branch of Shia Islam, the Twelver School, the official religion of their region. The Safavids ruled the area for a few hundred years, and they controlled at their height most of modern-day Iran, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Armenia, eastern Georgia, Iraq, Kuwait, Afghanistan, and parts of Turkey, Syria, Pakistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. They maintained the intercontinental trade routes that ran through their land and ports, but when their empire was attacked simultaneously by an alliance between the Russians, led by Peter the Great, and the Ottomans, alongside a collection of smaller opportunistic tribes and nation-states, they were smashed pretty handedly. 
China was still the endpoint of many of these routes, especially serving as the link between land routes and maritime routes. But for much of the Silk Road's history, they were a major player, but not the owner, or even necessarily the most important participant in these relatively well-traversed economic capillaries. At its height, the Silk Road connected around 200 major cities around the Old World. At no point did it connect to the Americas, but Asia, Europe, and Africa were interconnected for many hundreds of years, and as a consequence, technologies were shared, culture was exchanged, religions and diseases and wildlife were transmitted. And if our modern perception of what this network of routes was has become romanticized over the generations, we have a German man named Ferdinand von Richthofen to thank for that. Richthofen not only wrote a book about his expeditions to China from 1868 through 1872, he also coined the term Silk Road, which caught on in the 20th century, following the publication of a book called The Silk Road by a Swedish man named Sven Hayden, and the subsequent interest in Central Asian history and monuments following the collapse of the Soviet Union and their Iron Curtain around these areas. The Silk Road then, or at least our modern conception of it, is as much a modern invention as it was a historical reality. Our perception of how this network of trade routes operated, at least, and the way we have presented it in pop culture since the early 20th century, has been shaped by contemporary ideas about metropolitan exchange and adventure-laden stories written by the likes of Marco Polo and Edward Gibbon two writers and historians who were both products of their relative times and their cultures, an Italian and an Englishman, telling the world what the geographic and cultural East was like through the lens of their own cultural biases and mores. What I want to talk about today is a contemporary attempt to rebuild something very much like this network or at the very least, something very like its brand, and what that means for the areas connected to this Silk Road 2.0, but also what it could represent for China and their power and influence throughout the world. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to unspool today comes from Foreign Policy, and it's entitled, Will Djibouti Become Latest Country to Fall into China's Debt Trap? Djibouti is an African country located in the Horn of Africa region, which places it in the northwestern portion of the continent, with its coast touching both the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, and it's located right along the maritime approach to the Suez Canal. Yemen is just across the gulf from it, and Saudi Arabia is just north of that. Across Djibouti's land borders, you will find Eritrea to the north, Ethiopia to the west and southwest, and Somalia to the south. Now, Djibouti, despite only having around a million inhabitants and a total geographic footprint of around 9,000 square miles, which is about 23,000 square kilometers, It's about the same size as New Jersey, give or take a few hundred square miles. Despite those relatively humble stats, Djibouti is a vitally important economic, military, and political region. 
Historically, they were pivotal in helping the French establish a foothold in what would eventually become French Somaliland, before later gaining independence as the Republic of Djibouti, named after its capital city. The region contained a strategically significant port, which allowed those who held it to police the maritime trade running through the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. It's economically important for trade running to and from Ethiopia, and it has harbors and air bases that allow for the refueling and reloading of both trade and military ships and aircraft in a region where reliable and accessible bases are relatively scarce, at least for militaries and corporate entities not owned by a local African or Middle Eastern government. Djibouti's position within and just adjacent to many political and military hotspots in the world also make it a prime piece of real estate for anyone who might want to exert hard power influence, meaning anyone who might want to drop troops into Yemen or menace ISIS hotbeds with rockets or missiles launched from jets or gunships. This geographic good fortune has, over the last several decades in particular, post-World War II and throughout the Cold War and into the U.S.'s series of wars in the Middle East, translated into economic good fortune, as the French, the United States, and Japan have all rented space in Djibouti for military installations. And in the case of the U.S. Navy base that is located in the country, it's the only permanent military base held by the United States in all of Africa. And this scarcity and location-driven investment has contributed substantially to the local economy. But things got complicated in 2016, when negotiations concluded with the Chinese to build naval facilities in the region. Facilities that would be located more or less just down the street from these other existing bases that are owned by France, Japan, and the United States. And they're located so close because it is a relatively small country. There's no choice but to build such things pretty close to each other. The Chinese base, which is officially called the Chinese People's Liberation Army Support Base in Djibouti, opened for business in August of 2017. And they conducted their first live-fire exercises the following month. Earlier this year, in May of 2018, China started constructing a massive pier at their Djibouti base, and around the same time held the first ever China-Africa Defense and Security Forum, where they talked about partnerships and plans and resources, and held joint live-fire military exercises with several African nations with which they have bilateral relationships. They also demonstrated their military capabilities in the region to local representatives. They followed up on a 2015 promise to distribute $100 million in free military assistance to countries in the region to fund a so-called African standby force, which would allow different portions of the continent to respond to military emergencies faster and more reliably than has been possible in the past and to help train professional military forces on a country-by-country -country basis, establishing China-led training programs for local military personnel and organizers. This sequence of events, the military forum and the establishment of this and other military bases in the area, are part of a larger economic move to build relationships and infrastructure in Africa, in pretty much any country that will let them in, anyone that is willing to accept their resources and expertise. 
China is investing heavily in roads and energy services, in bases and barriers, in electrical grids and factories. And their ostensible rationale for doing all of this is to help increase stability in the area, to support United Nations operations in the region, to help stave off the rule of local warlords and terrorist organizations and pirates, and to more or less increase the quality of life for everyone involved in numerous ways. And all of that is at least partially true. As tends to be the case, it's not the complete story. But in a lot of ways, these investments have improved the infrastructural situation for a lot of regions, and they could continue to do so in the future. In the last few years in particular, for numerous reasons, but especially because of the United States' recalibration toward insularity and the resurgence in isolationist rhetoric and action coming from within the White House, but also within many different European nations in their political system at the moment, China has been making the most of the world's sole remaining superpower and a lot of other powerful world nations as well, apparently ceding their leadership role, deciding that they don't want the responsibilities that come with that kind of position anymore. And China has been making investments, planting seeds that could give them the control, the policing power, the economic dominance, reinforced by military strongholds and capabilities that are required to wear that global superpower mantle. At the moment, despite its increasing economic and military influence, China is still considered by many to be primarily a regional power. A big one, sure, and one with a huge amount of potential. But still, it's no United States, it's no Soviet Union at its height. They are doing a lot to expand their reach, and very quickly. But today, at least, they are still limited in what they can do. Most of what China is planning for and investing in right now will vest. It will begin to pay dividends somewhere around 10 years from now. And their actions, spending money to help out other countries, but importantly, to also indebt those countries to China in countless different ways, small, medium, and large-sized ways. They're reinforcing their own influence, their own power structure, political, economic, military, and physical, tangible locations and assets. And that will put them in a very different position from where they are today, once those relationships are locked into place and combine with all of the other relationships that they're building. And that will give them many of the same overarching meta-powers that the United States currently holds over global events. Because yes, part of being a superpower is having the ability to end any war just by launching a few dozen nukes, if you want to. But the other part of that superpower label comes from controlling the actions other nations are able to take. And even though the governments on the receiving end of these behind-the-scenes directives will balk and stomp their feet and pretend that they are not under anyone else's sway, the reality is often something more complicated than that. Very often, through a combination of mechanisms and means, the United States can make things happen, can get their way, without ever having to bring up the uncomfortable subject of nukes or aircraft carriers or Navy SEALs. That is the real benefit of being a superpower. In 10 years, give or take, according to many estimates that I've seen, China may be in a position to finally enjoy that same privilege. The privilege of never needing to go to war to protect itself, to never really be under any serious threat from any conventional military, 
or even many traditional economic threats, to instead be a meta-nation above it all, pretty much always, to be able to manipulate other countries and either grant privileges or level punishments based on the infrastructure that they have in place and the leverage that they've been able to install around the world. At that level, they need to have enough military might to make it clear that they can demolish anyone who might threaten them, but they also need to be able to control economic flow defend their non-Chinese pseudo-subjects from invaders, like pirates and terrorists, and be capable of stacking the deck consistently in their favor so they can shape the path that the world takes, rather than having some other country, some other ideological system shaping theirs. Now, these activities on the African continent are just one small part of a larger plan which has been called a few different things over the years, but which is typically, these days, referred to as the Belt Road Initiative, or BRI. The BRI is made up of two main infrastructural corridors. The Belt is a series of overland corridors that extend outward from China in several different directions. One tendril extends up through Mongolia into Russia. Another goes up through Europe and to the UK. Another passes through Western Asia and into Turkey. Another passes through Pakistan and reaches across the water to Djibouti. There's another that goes through Bangladesh and into India. And one more that passes down through Southeast Asia toward Indonesia. So that's the belt component of the Belt Road Initiative. And the road component connects several Chinese ports to ports in Indonesia and the Philippines, in India, in several African countries, and up through the Suez Canal, which connects the Red Sea, over by Djibouti, to the Mediterranean Sea, which allows those Asian and African ports to then reach European cities, primarily through ports in Italian cities. This BRI project, which is really a series of interconnected projects, achieves a few major goals for China. First, it helps them expand their economic output, giving them new markets or more easily accessible and controllable markets for the goods that they produce, which is important because that helps them avoid any issue with, for instance, trade wars, with trading partners like the United States which are currently important enough that such problems are actually problems. Once the BRI is in place, though, the United States and other major trade partners will individually have far less economic leverage over China. Second, it allows them to increase their influence across a larger portion of the world. It doesn't directly connect to the Americas, but it does firm up the grip that China has across the rest of the world by increasing their economic influence, their ability to declare trade wars and to get their way more of the time by making more economies dependent on their export and import power, while also giving them the ability and excuse to build more infrastructure locally for the areas that these trade routes touch. Third, those infrastructure investments give China more direct leverage, similar to what they're gaining in Africa, by building out their bases and other military outposts there. If they increase their economic interests in Europe, for instance, that will help them gain the political wherewithal, but also the transportation and production capabilities necessary to participate in, for instance, anti-terrorism efforts in the region. Maybe building new bases and getting their weapons and training into areas that are currently understaffed or underfunded or heavily influenced by some other entity. 
Now, if this sounds similar to what the United States has done around the world with alliances like NATO and NAFTA and even the United Nations, at least in part, then you're not mistaken. It's a very similar playbook, though it deviates in some very important ways that makes this new move notable. One of the ways in which it deviates is that when the United States started expanding its reach post-World War II, it opted for a semi-beneficent model, at least compared to what the Soviet Union had opted for, which was basically taking over all of their neighbors and placing Soviet-friendly dictators in charge of those countries. The United States, through efforts like the Marshall Plan, in contrast, pretty much just gave out money, with very few direct strings attached, to nations around the world. They helped these nations flesh out their international trading infrastructure and helped them protect themselves against authoritarians and authoritarian-style communism because their overarching theory, which has proved to be at least somewhat true for most of the last century, has been that by spreading American-style democracy and by spreading American-style capitalism, by essentially making more free and open trade available around the world, more of the world would become interdependent, fewer wars would be fought, and everyone would become, overall, wealthier, or at least have a wealthy overclass, which would ensure everyone would have way too much to lose to fight with each other. It would become more profitable, it would make more sense almost always to deal with each other economically and diplomatically rather than militarily. Now, this doesn't mean there were not other benefits built into this system. The U.S. was not acting 100% beneficently, and a lot of small privileges were baked into these deals. On top of that, the United States has often throughout its history usurped, using various methods, any government that doesn't play ball according to our rules. And those rules have shifted and evolved over the years, but in many cases, our purported adherence to democracy and justice has given way to other priorities, leading to the usurpation of democratically elected politicians that we didn't like in favor of dictators that would play ball, according to some specific priority of the moment. So it's a super mixed record, and I do not want to paint a rosy picture with the United States as the clear, untarnished protagonist of the 20th and 21st centuries. That's absolutely not the case. A lot of good has stemmed from this approach, but so has a lot of bad. But the distinction I do want to make here is that, for the most part, when the U.S. gave out resources, it was with relatively few official strings attached. And the ones that were attached generally tied back to things like promoting human rights and increasing democratic and free trade participation. It wasn't conquering in the traditional sense. It was more about spending a great deal to have the sort of influence traditionally enjoyed by a wealthy paterfamilias over the family. Here's a rich and powerful country sharing its wealth, and it's understood that when negotiations need to happen, all else being equal... That wealthy and powerful country that helped you out, helped you build those bases, fight off those enemies, defend against other nearby encroaching powers, that helpful superpower will generally hold more sway than anyone else when it comes to who gets what. China's approach is similar in the sense that they are a fast-growing, influential, wildly wealthy country that is spreading their wealth around and doing so to buy a type of influence. One major difference, though, is that rather than making it a no-obvious-strings-attached sort of deal, 
with a nudge-nudge-wink-wink understanding that maybe the receiving country will owe the giving country a favor at some point. China is essentially operating as a giant bank for many of these countries. So they find a politician who is trying to goose his numbers, trying to make it look like he's accomplishing things, building stuff for the people, rather than accomplishing very little, or taking a lot of the funds and benefits of rule for himself. And to accomplish this, to build this Potemkin village, to make it look like he's a good leader, he invites China in, has one of these Chinese companies with ties to the Chinese government build a beautiful new highway, or a new port, or a new sewage system, or energy grid. To make this happen, to be able to afford this amazing new whatever, China presents that government with very favorable terms. They're essentially saying, dude, don't worry about it. We will front you the billions of dollars that you need for that highway. No problem. And the money that they front goes straight to that Chinese company with the government connections. That Chinese company then builds the highway, something that they have become very good at, what with all the infrastructure that they've been building in China of late. And the country that gets the highway pays very little up front. But because of the cost of this infrastructure and the fact that the country receiving it cannot really afford it, in some cases can't even afford the interest on the loan that they received from the Chinese government, that country ends up in what is sometimes called a sovereign debt trap. A sovereign debt trap is a situation in which it's fairly obvious ahead of time that a nation cannot afford what they are building, what they are buying. But because of the needs of today, the need to show growth, to show off a new highway so that the politician in charge can get reelected, they are willing to take on that debt that they will never be able to repay. Because chances are, by the time it becomes a problem, well, it won't be that politician's problem. Someone else will be in office and they will have to worry about it. Now, the benefits of having other countries indebted to it in this way for China are twofold. The first main benefit is that having that debt over these other governments' heads means that they hold leverage over them. So other negotiations related to such projects or not tend to go their way. They get that paterfamilias benefit just like the United States has, but instead of it being an understood sort of thing, the loyalty is ensured by China's ability to call in that debt whenever they like, potentially crippling the indebted country which would be unable to pay, and which would therefore become a bit of a pariah state on the world stage. They wouldn't be able to get any new debt for future projects, having defaulted on this debt that they owed to China, and they would need to pull back on infrastructure that they are currently able to afford in order to recoup money, to be able to afford anything in the future. They could print more money to be able to pay for their debt, but that can spiral into hyperinflation, and a country that has this kind of debt and can't afford it almost always has to turn toward austerity measures for the general citizenry, which are usually insanely unpopular cuts to government-provided services because of the decisions that the government made that led to overspending. And so any increase, any additional squeeze that China puts on these countries that are indebted to them can push them closer and closer to that brink, which can lead to a really deleterious spiral. So that's pretty potent leverage all by itself. But the second main benefit for China is that, at times, this stranglehold can allow them to take control of a previously unattainable piece of infrastructure. And this takes us back to China's new military base in Djibouti, 
which would presumably have been crazily difficult to get, based on how assiduously the United States and Japan in particular fought against it being built. We saw a similar influence coup happen in Sri Lanka recently, too, when the local government gave China a 99-year lease on a port in Hambantota as part of a debt reduction deal. This follows other similar moves in which China bought up previously not-on-the-table strategic assets from local governments after putting those governments into debt, and then leveraging that debt to acquire the ports and bases and real estate that they want, that they need, for their BRI expansion plans. Again, this is a hugely different model of lending compared to other major country-scale leaders that exist today. The International Monetary Fund and the World Bank do not come with zero strings attached, but they also don't generally collateralize strategic assets like ports or mineral resources with the intention of simply claiming those pieces of collateral if they want them. China, on the other hand, does. And China, because of their growth in the 21st century and their ambitions in this regard to build their BRI network, their modern Silk Road, has been willing to fund projects that these other pseudo-banks would not be able to fund or wouldn't be willing to fund. And they do so in a lot of cases because it is clear from the outset that the country wanting to do the borrowing, wanting to build that new highway, clearly cannot afford it. For China, that is part of what they are after in some cases. Some geopolitical experts are calling this approach debt book diplomacy, creditor imperialism, or simply the traditional sovereign debt trap. Whatever we choose to call it, though, it's clear that, like Russia's recent little green man and social media manipulation efforts, it's an asymmetric approach to international relations that makes use of the current state of things, the technologies and world today, to gain advantage for those making these asymmetric moves. You can hack foreign elections, you can instigate proxy wars disguised as local popular uprisings, and you can forcibly take over foreign ports and bases and resources as long as you color within the lines of the current global world order, which means playing ball with corporations and banks and moneylenders and extracting value via those means, using those tools and systems, rather than in most cases at least, extracting the same at the barrel of a gun. It's likely, in the foreseeable future at least, that we will continue to see this same method used around the world by China primarily because of their current economic and political position. But potentially, we may see this tactic be used by other nations as well, nations that want to reinforce their authority within a particular area. Now, I wouldn't be surprised to see Russia try something similar, for instance. And it could make sense for nations like Canada or Finland to attempt the same in certain places, in certain circumstances, especially as the race to bolster their positions in the swiftly melting Arctic Ocean heats up. And the zero-sum game of owning those trade routes incentivizes a more reliable and aggressive lockdown of real estate and resources than the current U.S. popularized model of democracy and free trade can offer. Now, all that said, this method of grabbing resources does come with its own risks. And for the next 10 years or so, in particular, until this BRI plan is more fully implemented, China will be in a relatively precarious position due to the nature of their influence-building efforts. 
It's possible, for instance, that China could overextend themselves and go so ultra-deep into debt, building infrastructure for other countries, that at some point they actually just need the money back. But likely, all they will be able to get is another port, another military base, which in some ways just further raises their expenses, at least for a time, rather than adding to their bottom line. It's also possible that internal turbulence not unthinkable in a country run by a party-based dictatorship that keeps control, in part, by censoring information. It's possible that this type of turbulence could become a stick in their spokes, disruption from protests, from political negligence or corruption, from inequality or the over-enthusiastic building of megacities and other infrastructure that drains resources from governmental coffers, but which the citizenry cannot afford to make use of. That could all lead to problems down the road. Theirs is a plan with a lot of moving parts, requiring resources and interoperability between all of those sprockets and gears at a stunningly massive scale. If any piece of that big machine fails to fall into place, or if some kind of internal disruption upsets their schedule or available resources, the whole thing could fall apart pretty spectacularly and pretty quickly. On top of that, there's already evidence that the outlook for China's economy isn't as rosy as they might like the world to believe. China's economy is the world's largest, having produced $23.12 trillion in 2017, compared to $19.9 trillion by the European Union and $19.3 trillion by the United States that same year. That said, China still lags far behind these other economies by other metrics, like its overall standard of living. Chinese citizens only make about $16,600 per capita, while the GDP per capita of the average American is $59,500. What's more, while China has managed to stun the world with their growth, they have gone deep into debt to make that growth happen. It's difficult to get reliable numbers from a state that keeps so mum about so many things, and that regularly doctors official numbers to keep their results in step with the party line of the day. But most estimates have China taking on debt levels higher than that of the United States, and accumulating that debt at a far faster pace than the U.S. as well. About 10 years ago, China was purported to have debt levels equaling about 160% of its GDP. Today, it's estimated to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 280 to 300 percent of their gross domestic product. And a lot of that debt went into building cities, massive metropolises filled with homes and other infrastructure meant to house the millions of people they estimated would be moving into urban centers from rural Chinese farmlands. But although these projects were popular with officials, as it made them look good and productive and forward-thinking to the party leadership, which is likely what contributed to so many of them being built so quickly, many of these cities have thus far become ghost towns, meaning that they are at 10% or lower occupancy, with very little economic activity taking place inside them. In other words, massive debt has accumulated, but they have little to show for it. Rather than investing in assets, they invested in showpieces that turned out to be less impressive than originally planned. Now again, a lot of that is speculation, but it is speculation by experts on the Chinese economy for journalistic entities like the Wall Street Journal. 
There's bound to be deviation in the numbers one way or another, but it's quite possible that China could be on the verge of a significant debt crisis, an internal economic collapse moment, and the rest of the world wouldn't know until its impact reverberated outward and started causing them, started causing China to default on payments. That's just how that type of government is run. Image, in a lot of ways, is everything. It's all about perception. And the image that they want to maintain, especially right now, is that things are going great. They've got plenty of money in the coffers, and everyone should enthusiastically sign on to their BRI projects. So it could be that a major internal flaw in their larger plans is already becoming overwhelming, and the rest of us just don't know about it yet. It could also be that those estimates are way off, and the Chinese government has it all under control. There's no way to know for sure from the outside. China's model of debt-powered conquest could also be challenged by some major shift in the global economic paradigm. If the World Bank or other entities changed the way that they provided funds to poor countries, that could take away a major ace from China's deck. If other countries like the United States or groups of countries like the EU began to provide more funding, it could also stifle their play. If global economic prosperity spread as a consequence of a new technological development, a new economic system, or some other windfall. Basically, if portions of the economically developing world became economically developed by whatever means, for any reason, that could also hamstring this effort, as this strategy of China's is largely dependent on maintaining economic inequality. Which sucks, because that means that entities like China, who have these kinds of strategies in place, are reliant on keeping a whole lot of the world poor, so those countries can be influenced. So they, and many other governments, would seem to have an incentive to keep as much of the world as possible, as destitute as possible, so that they can slowly but surely take over their most desirable and strategically relevant assets. All of which is a fairly troublesome thought, if you extrapolate on it a little bit. So China has come up with a clever-as-hell method of utilizing their existing advantages to gain more advantages, many of which will vest a decade or more from today, which itself is kind of leveraging one of their advantages, since they have what amounts to a president for life, which gives them consistency of leadership, which is something that their democratic neighbors do not have. In 10 years, we could be two presidents distant from where we are now here in the United States, which could mean two entirely new sets of administrative plans and policies have come and gone in the meantime. Predictions at this scale are usually missing about 99.999% of what we actually need to know to make them accurately. And although some of the most well-informed minds are pointing at this BRI effort as a foundational structure of the 21st century, that could prove to be a misread, and the world could pivot in a completely different direction. It could also be that tighter control, more dictatorial police state methods, like the ones that China often leverages, will come back into vogue. It could be that the growth of open trade and democratic ideals were just a flash in the pan, historically speaking, and that a flexible version of a party-based dictatorship, which plays well with the global marketplace and which leverages its strengths appropriately, could be the model that comes to dominate the 21st century, just as democracies of various shapes and sizes did in the last century. Either way, this will be an interesting space to watch. What's happening in countries like Djibouti 
in mining towns throughout Africa and at ports in Sri Lanka could provide a preview as to what international relationships, global finance, and military strategy will look like, not just for China, but for everyone in the coming years. The book that I'd like to recommend today is the first piece of fiction that I've read after finishing up the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. So that series, if you've read it, it's a little bit dark and dreary at points, and it's definitely kind of an internally logical fantasy kind of science fiction, so a very different thing than I typically enjoy. But I did end up enjoying it, it just ended up being kind of a very large commitment of time, and it has kind of a dark, morose tone to it for a lot of that period. This book that I'm recommending today, though, is the polar opposite of that. The book is called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, and it's by Becky Chambers, and it's apparently the first book in a series, and I cannot wait to pick up the next books in this series. This is science fiction, and it takes place on a starship flying around, punching holes in reality to build these like tunnels in the universe to make space travel a whole lot more efficient. But to me, the real treat in reading this book are the characters. There's a good storyline, and they're playing in an interesting world that she has built here. But the characters are just so delightful and fun, and each and every one of them I loved as soon as I made it through the first interaction that they had with another character. And that's not easy to do, especially in this type of book, where it is a compelling story and it is a compelling world that has been built. In some cases, the characters don't get the development that they deserve, and the dialogue is a little bit flat. That is absolutely not the case in this book. I found myself racing through it. It was just so much fun to read. I was laughing out loud at times. So if you're looking for a delightful piece of science fiction that is a whole lot of fun and is an excellent example of science fiction while also being very lighthearted and almost like a mental hug as opposed to a mental slap across the face, if that makes sense, you might consider picking up The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. You can find out more about my tour and pick up some tickets if I'm coming through your city at becomingtour.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of those. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright. And I'll talk to you again next week.